Section 16 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 16, Chapter 6, The Evidence from Tails, Limbs, and Lungs of Animals, Part 3. The subject of the origin of limbs, however, still awaits our brief study. At various periods in the history of comparative anatomy, the original nature of limbs has formed a subject regarding which very diverse opinions have been expressed. Owen long ago regarded limbs as corresponding to processes or appendages of ribs. MacLeese represented them a little later as modified ribs, and other authorities have propounded theories in which the limbs are regarded as corresponding to outgrowths from a peculiarly modified gill arch, the latter structure forming the supporting girdle of the limbs, or in the case of the forelimb, the shoulder. Recent researches into the development of the fins of fishes, to which we naturally turn for the most primitive form of limb extant, appear to lead to the declaration that there is no real difference in nature to be perceived between the paired and unpaired fins. The paired fins of the dogfishes and sharks are known to arise as special developments of a single long and continuous fold existing in each side of the young fish, and the unpaired fins arise from folds of like nature. Thus, if the history of the individual may again be held to explain the evolution of the race, then we may conceive of the first limbs having been developed as a pair of long and unbroken side fins, which ultimately became detached or broken up to form the paired fins as we see these organs in the fishes of today. When the simplest types of limbs in fishes are examined, as for example in the Ceratidus or the Barramundi of Australian rivers, the native salmon of the colonists, the primitive nature of such fins appears to accord well with the idea of their origin and formation as above described. In Ceratidus, the skeleton of the limbs appears as a simple many-jointed rod of gristle, to the sides of which the equally simple fin rays are attached. It is equally interesting to find that the lowest and presumably the oldest and most primitive fishes, the lancelet and the lamprey tribe, are absolutely destitute of paired fins or limbs. These latter fishes may thus be regarded as presenting us with a representation of those early stages in Piscine existence, before the limbs became specialized, and when the unpaired and median fins alone represented the organs of motion. That both pairs of limbs were probably developed from one and the same structure is rendered more than probable when we discover that in some fishes the pectoral and ventral fins exactly resemble each other, such a likeness being well seen in the somewhat remarkable fish, allied to the sharks, etc., and known as the chimera, or king of the herrings. The development and growth of the paired fins or limbs became localized, and thus brought about the separation of the limbs and their distinction from the continuous side folds which gave them birth, whilst the growth of the unpaired fins, on the other hand, continued throughout the entire length of the fold, and resulted in the production of the back, tail, and anal fins as we find them today. Amidst much speculation and not a few theoretical considerations regarding the nature of the limb girdles or supports, which it must be left to future research to substantiate or nullify, there still remains to us a large share of true and exact philosophy in what is definitely known regarding the genesis of limbs. 
in such a study we discern a new phase of the ever-recurring watchwords of the evolutionist modification and descent and we are led also to note that in the past history of even the most familiar structures of animals may be contained a veritable romance of science for certainly no more startling or unlikely supposition than that of the common nature of the arm the wing the fin the paddle and the limb could well be broached yet as the context may have shown the facts of life bear out the romance with which even a technical but interesting study may be shown to be invested and the truths of comparative anatomy are thus shown to be stranger indeed than the creative fictions of former years if the tales of fishes may be literally deemed ends in the most literal sense there yet remain one or two cases of odd structures in fishes and in other animals the investigation of which may serve to strengthen those conclusions respecting the validity of the development theory at which we have already arrived one of the most peculiar structures found in fishes is the air bladder swimming bladder or sound as it is variously called from the walls of the swimming bladder of the sturgeons the well-known isinglass is prepared the air bladder exhibits exceedingly diverse forms in the class of fishes and in truth presents the upholders of the special creation theory with one of the most unsatisfactory of subjects in respect of the eccentricity of its nature and distribution in the fish class thus no traces of an air bladder are discernible in the lowest fishes the lancelets and lampreys before alluded to it is well represented in many common fishes but certain of the latter as for example the flounders and other flat fishes want it altogether whilst the sharks rays and dogfishes possess the merest rudiment of this organ the special creation theory affords no explanation of the anomaly of one fish possessing an air bladder whilst in certain of its near neighbors this structure is entirely absent but the difficulty of the one theory of creation is as we shall presently see the triumph of the other even amongst ordinary fishes the air bladder varies very much in form in the cod and perch for instance the air bladder is simply a closed sack or bag filled with gas in the carp on the other hand this organ communicates with the throat by means of a duct or tube and in this fish as well as in the roach the air bladder lies in curious relation to the internal ear and probably serves some important function such as that of increasing the resonance of sound in the herring the air bladder appears to be placed in communication with the stomach and in other fishes corvina and Jonius, this structure is of complicated form and is divided into a large number of ramifications and processes it is interesting to note that whatever may be the nature of the air bladder in the adult fish all air bladders are provided with a duct in the young state the duct becomes obliterated in such fishes as the cod and perch leaving the air bladder a closed sac whilst it persists in the herring carp etc as already noted in all ordinary fishes the air bladder has one settled function it acts as a hydrostatic apparatus by compressing or expanding this structure with its included gas the fish is enabled to preserve a due relation between its own specific gravity and that of the water and is thus enabled to rise or sink at will it is interesting moreover to note that so far as the history of both lungs and air bladder can be constructed by the light of development both structures appear to be modifications of one and the same primitive organ 
the first use of both structures was probably that seen in the ordinary air bladder today namely to form a receptacle for gas this gas becoming used for breathing when the functions of the gills were interrupted in this way the functions of lungs were foreshadowed and as the sequel will show there is ample evidence at hand of such a modification having actually taken place but the story of the swim bladder ends not thus the mere knowledge of its functions and use in no wise aids us towards the understanding of what it is or of its origin yet we may trace this organ from its form and nature in our common fishes to the ancient ganoid group of fishes now sparsely represented in our seas by the sturgeons by the bony pikes of north american lakes by the polyptery of the nile and other african rivers and by the still more curious lepidosirens or mudfishes of the gambia and amazon and the ceratidus or barramundi of australian fresh waters in the ganoid fishes the air bladder presents us with varying forms in all it communicates with the throat or stomach by a tube or duct as in the familiar carp which however is not a ganoid fish it may be single or paired in the ganoid group and we must note a more special feature of the swim bladder of these fishes in that it frequently presents a cellular or divided structure internally in the polyptery of african rivers the swimming bladder is thus not only double but divided internally into cells or small compartments whilst it also opens into the throat by a distinct aperture in the bony pike lepidosteus it is quite as complicated in structure and in ceratitis the air bladder whilst a single organ exhibits a lung-like structure internally and opens into the throat by a distinct opening or glottis but in the mud fishes or lepidosirens which spend half the year amidst dry mud and the other half in their native waters the air bladder obtains its highest development here it is not merely double but it is also cellular internally and communicates with the throat by means of a tube or duct it is moreover provided at the extremity of this tube with an organ resembling the structure which guards the windpipe of higher animals the nostrils which in other fishes are simply closed pockets open backwards in lepidosiren into the throat and thus place the air bladder in communication with the atmosphere without more noteworthy still we find that part of the impure blood circulating through the body of the mudfish is sent to this curious air bladder and circulates through its blood vessels from the air bladder it is returned in a pure condition to the heart and is thus fitted for recirculation through the body what is the meaning of this curious alteration in the function and use of the air bladder the answer is plain the air bladder in the mudfish has attained its highest development it appears as an organ receiving impure blood which is purified in its cells it receives air from the outer atmosphere for the purpose of purifying this blood in one word the air bladder of the fish has become a lung thus we discover that the air bladder of the fish in reality represents the lungs of higher animals evolution would proceed still further and ask us to recognize in the air bladder the structures from which the lungs have been developed in the past and a full consideration of the details just presented strengthens this latter opinion we noted that in the most primitive fishes for example lancelet and lampreys no swimming bladder was represented its development therefore took place at a stage subsequent 
to the appearance of the ancestors of our existing lancelets and lampreys. Gradually, as the Piscine type advanced, the air bladder appeared. The forerunners of the sharks and their allies, which are as ancient as the ganoids, may have possessed an air bladder, since we find rudiments of this organ in these latter fishes. But in free-swimming and surface-living fishes, like the sharks and dogfishes, or groundlings like the skates and rays, the necessity for a hydrostatic apparatus is obviated, as it is also obviated in the flatfishes which spend their lives on the sand. To the ganoids we must, therefore, look for the true history of the air bladder. Equally ancient with the sharks and their allies, the ganoids, from their habits and ways of life, became provided with an air bladder, which, as time passed, became still better specialized through the effects of use aided by natural selection, as the propagating principles of a structure useful and advantageous to the race. As offshoots from a more ancient type of fishes, the first representatives of our common fishes probably developed an air bladder which, once again, owing probably to variations in habit, has become well-developed in some, such as the carps, herrings, perch, and the like, but obliterated in others, such as the flounders and their neighbors, most probably from disuse. The ganoid race has declined in numbers since the days of Devonian oceans, but its living members represent within their select circle the stages in the modification of the swim bladder. In the sturgeons, the type of the organ is of primitive kind. In the polyptery, the air bladder has become double, but in the bony pike, Lepidosteus, it is not merely double, but exhibits a cellular or lung-like structure internally, and it is equally lung-like in Amea, another well-known type of ganoid fishes. Still more lung-like does the organ become in the Ceratodus or Baramundi where it is placed in relation with the blood system. When, however, we reach the mudfishes, or lepidosirens, we pass the definite boundary which separates the swim bladder from the lung, and discover an organ not merely lung-like in structure, but which performs all the functions of a lung in purifying venous blood and in returning such purified blood to the heart. The lungs of the mudfishes, formed thus by the gradual modification of an air bladder, present us with the true origin of the breathing organs of all higher vertebrates. It is interesting to note that in the climbing perches and ophiocephali, both characteristic Indian fishes, we find examples of fishes which appear actually to breathe air directly from the atmosphere, in addition to the air respired from the water by their gills. The former fishes appear to breathe out of water chiefly through a supply of moisture being retained in certain curiously twisted bones of the head. The latter fishes possess large cavities in the throat, air being admitted to these receptacles by the mouth. Impure blood circulating in the blood vessels of these cavities is probably purified by the oxygen of the inhaled air, and the essential functions of a lung are thus discharged by the receptacles in question. Experiments on these fishes reveal the interesting fact that, unless they are occasionally permitted to gain free access to the atmosphere for the purpose of inhaling air, they die suffocated. The climbing perch, indeed, is known to make overland journeys, ambling along on its spiny fins in search of water, and presents thus a striking exception to the truth of the universally accepted apothem regarding the discomfort of a fish out of water. 
We thus discover that the process of modification in the fish class in the direction of air-breathing habits may be illustrated in other ways than by development of the swimming bladder, although it must be borne in mind that the latter organ is the true representative and ancestor, as illustrated by Lepidosiren, of the lungs. The lungs of true air-breathers, as seen in members of the frog class, may indeed, as in the Proteus and its neighbors, be actually inferior in structure to those of the mudfishes. When we consider that, like the mudfishes, the frogs and their neighbors breathe invariably by gills in early life, in their tadpole stage, and afterwards, as represented by the frogs, discard their gills for lungs, we may discern in such a series of changes in the breathing apparatus the further stages through which the progenitors of the higher vertebrata passed from the fish-like type and assumed that of the higher atmospheric breathers. For, as has been remarked by authority in matters biological, the tadpole is at first a fish, and then a tailed amphibian, provided both with gills and lungs, before it becomes a frog, because the frog was the last term in a series of modifications whereby some ancient fish became a urodeal, or tailed amphibian, and the urodeal amphibian became an anurous or tailless frog. In fact, the development of the embryo is a recapitulation of the ancestral history of the species. Mr. Darwin, too, remarks that morphology plainly tells us that our lungs consist of a modified swim bladder which once served as a float, and again, According to this view, it may be inferred that all vertebrate animals with true lungs are descended by ordinary generation from an ancient and unknown prototype, which was furnished with a floating apparatus or swim bladder. The discussion of biological odds and ends has thus brought us face to face with that great problem of nature, the origin of species, which admits of a fair and rational solution only on the hypothesis that change, alteration, and modification in living beings perpetuated by descent and favored or annulled by the action of natural selection constitute the factors which are responsible for the existing order of things. The most abstruse phenomena of nature and the most diverse facts of life are brought by this theory into definite relationship and made to serve as pathways towards the knowledge of still hidden laws. Under the old regime, in which the operation of a special creative force, alike erratic in its action and spasmodic in its work, was made to do duty as the originative method of this world and its belongings. The universe itself was simply a connection of paradoxes and insoluble enigmas. The naturalist of bygone days had need for a full cultivation of unreasoning faith in this unknown creative method since of its apparent vagaries he was unable to give any rational account. Now, with the theory of evolution at hand, the disconnected facts of natural history fall into an harmonious and unbroken sequence of finger-posts and guides, pointing the way of creation as having passed through the pathways of descent, with modification as its henchman, and adaptation to new ways of life as its guide, counselor, and friend. End of section 16. Chapter 6. The Evidence from Tails, Limbs, and Lungs of Animals. Part 3.